So yeah, as you heard, I, today I get to be like the most antisocial pastor ever and just hide away. It's like what I always want to do but can't. But I get to today because um, you know, this uh, surgery is coming up on Wednesday. Uh, so Cinco de Mayo, while the rest of you are enjoying, yeah, the rest of you get to enjoy tacos and cultural appropriation, and I get to uh, to get like cut open. Um, I, I just want to say real quickly how uh, much of a blessing you all have been, um, the prayers, the support, uh, like a dozen people came up. We had some piles of branches that we wanted to get out to the road and I can't do it right now. Enjoy's working a bunch. And so, uh, we asked, you know, Dave, if he could organize a work party and like a dozen people came over yesterday and worked for a couple of hours probably and did the place looks like a park. I mean, I couldn't believe how much work got done. It just, you know, it was another reminder of, um, how much, you know, you guys love us and, and it really touched us. So here I go, Paul. <sighs> um, I probably will be out for about a month. Um, I'm guessing, I don't know, I've never had this done before, so not too sure, but I'm optimistic that, you know, it's going to go well. Uh, it sounds like by way of just like specific prayer, if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, pray for my family. I know they're, you know, worried as I am a little bit too. Uh, and, uh, the doc says he thinks he can repair my valve. And if he repairs it, he's 90% sure he can do that. That's the best case scenario. If he can't, I have to either get a mechanical valve, which means I'm on blood thinners the rest of my life and I can hear it. And I'm really partial to noise. So that would drive me crazy, I think. Or I get a pig valve, which I don't know, you know, how you feel about the abomination of desolation, but that just seems like if I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I'm, th- I'm overthinking a lot of this right now. Anyway, neither of those are the best case scenario. It's better if they can repair mine. And so that's what I would just, you know, if you could pray that, I'd appreciate that. So Wednesday at 530, I go in and, um, you know, we'll give you guys an update. I probably won't because I'll probably be you know, a little out of it, I'm going to guess. Um, but thank you so much for everybody that's offered to pray and to support us and help us. It's just been overwhelming in, in a good way. So uh, we're, we're grateful. Okay. First Peter chapter three is where we're going to be in looking at this morning. Uh, this passage contains a very famous verse that, that we hear often that tells Christians to always be ready to give an answer. I used to listen to a radio show called To Every Man and Answer when I used to drive around a lot. And the idea behind the show, they took their name from this verse, obviously. And the idea is that people call in with random Bible questions. And these guys have seconds to find a verse that will answer that question correctly. That's, I think, you know, that would be kind of terrifying if, if you had that job, right? And these guys do it on purpose. I think sometimes as Christians, that's what we think this verse is asking us to do, which, like I said, is a little terrifying. Our church did something to, to like this to us one family camp. Uh, they had the, the wonderfully great idea to do a game called Stump the Pastors, of course, they didn't run this bias before they did this, but uh, at some point we came out to the, the grand meeting, and, and at that time it was David and I, and then uh, Jordan Boston, Jordan 1.0, not Jordan 2.0, so you don't get them confused. Uh, and they, they had us sit in these chairs in the middle of the, the gathering, and they asked us really hard Bible trivia questions. It's like, wow, fun game. Um, we made it through. It was a little, like I said, terrifying, but we made it through and it gave us a reason like 97 or so of why we have multiple pastors here at the door. Because, you know, the old joke is between the three of us, we make one decent pastor. And, and that 
came true that day too. You know, somebody had to answer usually, which was nice. Um, we decided not to make that an annual tradition, and that was the first and last game of Stump the Pastors that we played. But again, I think that's what many of us think this verse is asking us. It's the idea that there are these intellectual ninjas out there hiding behind corners, waiting, you know, just waiting to jump out with these these hard questions, and we need to know how to satisfactorily answer whatever they come up with. And of course, I take it even further because I always take everything further. Uh, I put this pressure on myself that if I answer well, they will fall to their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? And if I answer poorly, they will walk away and be eternally lost. And it's my fault. Now, that's not true, but that's what that's the way I think about this. And so, you know, you know, and don't tell anybody, but I don't have all the answers. So that puts even more pressure on you. I, I find myself, you know, you want to have the super easy questions asked when somebody comes kind of like the member of the bridge scene at um, the Holy Grail movie. It's like, you know, what is your name? Uh, what is your quest? What is your favorite color? Those are questions I can answer. I like those. It's like, you know, uh, who, who are the first, the names of the first man and woman? It's like, you know, who are Adam and Eve? You know, good job. Yeah. But those aren't the things they're going to ask. They're going to ask weird things like, you know, could God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? And it's like, come on. Or who are the Nephilim and how did they come about? That's a fun one. Or the really, really hard ones, the stuff that no Christian really wants to get asked because they're hard questions. Why does evil and suffering exist? And how long, you know, how can a loving God send people to hell? Those are the questions that most of us probably aren't ready to give a, an answer for. And um, so, so this verse, if you think of it in that way, probably isn't one that you think about any more than you have to and, and maybe choose not to meditate on it. But I'm hoping to change that this morning because I want to say first, it is really, really important for every Christian to know why they believe what they believe. If you say you believe in the Trinity, you, you should be able to kind of explain why you believe in the Trinity. If you believe that Jesus was fully man and fully God, you should know why that's important and how to defend that. Those are good things for us to know as Christians. There's no question. We should be students of God's word, study to show yourself approved, um, so that if somebody does have a question, we can answer it. We can defend the faith. Every Christian should be like that. But I don't think that's exactly what this verse is, is talking about. I believe that what it's asking us to do is something that every Christian is able to do. Whether you're a child or a brand new Christian, this is possible. Because this verse has a lot more to do with people seeing the way we live, how we treat people, and how we react to adversity. And then they're compelled to ask us, what's up with that? Why, why do you live this way? What's, what's going on here? That's the big idea of this verse. So 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter starts out in verse 13 by asking a rhetorical question. Who harms those who do good things? And the assumed answer is nobody. It's rare for someone to come at you for being a good person. 
You know, if you don't, when was the last time you, you opened the door for somebody at a grocery store and they, they kicked you in the shin and said, jerk, you know, or let somebody in, you know, the, in traffic, you know, oh, go ahead of me. And they, they honk their horn and give you, you know, a, a weird hand gesture or something. That doesn't happen. People are generally pretty happy when you are nice. So generally speaking, people will not try to harm you when you live according to God's word. But this isn't a promise. It's a principle. And it's important that we understand the difference because oftentimes we'll try to take principles and make them promises. So this is much more like what we read in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7 where it says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's generally true. But we can take things like this and turn them into formulas where we try to put God's arm behind his back and force him into blessing us. Like, you know, okay, God, I followed all of your rules. And now you have to keep me from all harm. Do you do that kind of thing? I did my part, God. Now you fulfill your promise to me. Well, that's that. you're confusing God with that blue guy from, from Aladdin. Uh, you know, God doesn't have to give you all your wishes. That's not how he works. He's nothing like that. He does things according to his plans and purposes, which sometimes includes suffering. Kind of like when Jesus went to the cross, for example. If anyone deserved exclusive blessings from God, it was Jesus. And yet God allowed him to suffer to bring blessings to all of us. And sometimes there will be these these moments when he allows us to suffer. And when we do it well, he could end up bringing blessings to others through it. Now, Peter goes on to explain that not only does God expect his people to be good, he wants us to be zealous about it, zealous for doing what is right. Zealous is not a word that we we use a lot anymore. Um, It means eager devotion or intense enthusiasm. So, for example, if you are willing to camp outside of a theater for two weeks in order to get Star Wars tickets, you are a complete nerd. But you're also zealous for Star Wars movies, right? Or if you're willing to chain yourself to a tree that somebody is trying to cut down with a chainsaw, you're clearly zealous for the environment. Probably a little touched in the head as well. God wants us to be zealous in this way regarding righteousness. So we read in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is really important to him. Jesus saved us and purified us so that we would would just be giddy, for good works, excited to do them. Now, make sure you notice the order of of the way this verse went, Titus chapter 2, because it's completely the opposite of every other religion. With Christianity, Jesus saves us, purifies us, and then good works follow. The good works are what come out the other end based on what he did. In every other religion, the good works have to come first in order for someone to be saved. So, so that means that that's their motivation for doing good. When you see sometimes there's, there's you know, groups out there, I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to mind, that go door to door and they're, they're zealous, but they do it because they have to. This is, this is what they have to do in order to be saved. For us, it's something that we don't, it's not that what we have to do, it's what we get to do. And there's a big difference between those two. When we do good works, it's an act of worship and devotion to a loving father who's already done everything necessary for us to be saved and to enjoy relationship with him. 
Our Heavenly Father has lavished His love and provision on us, not because He uh, had to, because we deserved it or earned it, because He wanted to. And, and so the good works that come from us now are just the normal response to what He's done for us through Christ and because we love Him. And this blows people's minds. You're living this way because you want to, not because you have to. It's the same way I look at the, those, the nerds, you know, the Star Wars nerds. Like, you're, you're out here because you want to? I mean, no, are you being held against your will? Is there, what's going on? You want to be here? Yeah, same idea. Now, I realize there are going to be times when we won't be zealous. There, there, we won't always be this way when it comes to good works. Um, but I can tell you that prior to coming to Christ, I had no desire to follow God's commands or live in a way that pleased him. And now it matters to me a lot. That's a proof that a person has been born again. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone, the desires of our heart change. And so I remember this so vividly happening to me when I became a Christian. And and it wasn't something I was trying to do. It's just something that started to happen to me. The things that I love to do, the people I love to do it with, and the things that, that I love to say weren't the same anymore. I didn't love to do them anymore. I kind of didn't enjoy them very much, and, and I was convicted about them when I did them. And then I started to have new desires that made no sense to me either. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to be around other Christians. There was never a time in my life before coming to Christ that I wanted to be around other Christians. I didn't like them much. They were weird to me. Now I wanted to hang out with them, spend time with them. I wanted to learn about God, and I wanted to tell other people about him. And when I would read his word or hear a sermon and find out about something that God didn't want me to do or found out about something that God really wanted me to do, guess what? I wanted that too. The only explanation for this was that Christ had invaded my life. There is no other explanation for it. And so I want to challenge you in this regard because if what I just described is not true for you, if that doesn't sound familiar, if that doesn't make sense to you, if you hear God's word and you're unwilling to change what you're doing or you, you continually justify what you're doing so you can continue to do it, that, that's, that's a danger sign. So, you know, sometimes we look for red flags. That would be a red flag because God's word is food for his sheep. And, and if you don't like sheep food, if it, if, if it just tastes kind of gross to you and you want nothing to do with it, it might mean that you're not a sheep. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I feel like that's the most loving thing I could tell you. Because if you believe you are and you're not, you need to know. And this is one indication of that. If something is offensive to God, it should be offensive to us. And if something is delightful to God, it should be delightful to us. And I'm always amazed when I, when I see this, uh, when I see the impact that God's word has on Christians who hear it, you know, seeing somebody's will fall into line with God's will, not because they have to, but because they want to, is such a powerful testament to the, the presence and the power of God in somebody's life, the reality of the gospel. And I, and I can't tell you how many times someone comes up to us after a sermon and they'll just say, thank you. I know, I know what I need to do now. And you're kind of scratching your head thinking, what did I tell you? What did I say? And they're like, yeah, I know exactly. And, it, and we're talking about radical things sometimes, major changes in life where they'll just say, I know what I need to do. I need to go and, and you know, and they'll, they'll give you an example and you're just going, wow, that ain't because I preached a good sermon. That's because God is real and his power in our lives is real and his word is transformative. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the good that Peter has in mind um, that, that God wants us to be zealous about. He's just actually spent quite a bit of time in the previous verses laying out what these things are for us, so we're just going to kind of recap. He wants us to be good, law-abiding citizens. He wants us to be respectful to authority. He wants us to be excellent employees. He wants us to accept our roles in marriage and work hard at being a good husband and a good wife. He wants his people to be characterized by love, kindness, humility, honesty, peacefulness, and to live distinctively holy in this world. And and he's the one that makes that possible, right? Again, he saved us. He purified us. In order that, these things can be present. That's how he wants us to be. He wants us to live standout lives in this world as his children that reflect him to the watching world. It's exactly what Jesus did when he was here. He always reflected the father perfectly to the world around him as, as the son of God. You know, he reflected, there was no question about whose son he was, right? And we're God's children. It should be the same way when, when, when we're out and about. People who live this way will stand out like sore thumbs and, and will pique the curiosity of the world. They'll see that and they'll take notice. When they see us being obedient to Christ and his word, when they see us willingly placing ourselves second, when everybody else is placing themselves first, they're going to wonder why. What's up with that? And when you live this way, you can normally expect a relatively peaceful existence and a good life. That's bonus material right there, right? So we have incentive to do good. It pleases God. It generally keeps us from harm, and it attracts people to God. And that all sounds great, and then you get to verse 14, and there's that word, but, (laughs) where Peter's going to give us the exception to the rule. Most people are going to be fans when we do the things God wants us to do, but some people won't. Some people are going to hate it. It's weird to think that people wouldn't, uh, you know, like the people around them to live uprightly, to live godly, um, and that they would want to put a stop to it. But this is what we see happening even today. And, And you wonder, why would people be against this? Why would people have a hard time with this? Well, maybe it's because it convicts them of their sin. I remember when I became a new believer and I stopped doing all the stuff my friends were doing and they, you know, we'd be out doing something and I wouldn't be drinking and I wouldn't be saying the things I was saying. And they would be like, you know, it bothered them. Like, should I not be doing this? You know, that kind of thing. Maybe it's that they think we think it means we're better than them. I remember that too. They would see me doing, not doing these things. And they're like, they'd want to like pull me down off my high horse and be, you know, throw me down to their level and be like, ha, that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe it's just because they hate God and they hate everything about him and everything that has to do with him. But if I had to, uh, to guess the, the reason, the, mo- the main reason why people do this, it's because they're afraid that if they let righteousness prevail, if that becomes the standard, then the sin they love, they won't be able to do. And they don't want anybody, they want to protect that. They don't want anybody to tell them they can't live the way they want to. And so they try to put a stop to it. So back to chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So there it is. We may have to suffer for living the way God wants us to. I, I, I love that the Bible is honest about things. <laughs> it's just another proof that it's God's word and not man's word. Because if man wrote the Bible, guess what he wouldn't say? <laughs> there may be times when you have to suffer for becoming a Christian. They would leave that out. That's not something you put on the promotional flyer, right? 
just you don't do that. You wouldn't even bring that up. Uh, you would act like that's not true. In fact, there's a lot of churches right now where you will never hear this. They will, they will not tell you the truth. They will say, if you come to Christ, you'll never suffer. You'll never have problems. You'll never have to worry about these things. The Bible is honest, and I, and I love that it's honest. We might have to suffer for living the way God has asked us to live. But even if that happens, according to what we just read, we'll be blessed. <laughs> kind, of, kind of crazy. I like that. There's the old saying, and I'll clean it up for Sunday morning, darned if you do and darned if you don't. Well, for the Christian, it's the exact opposite. Blessed if you do and blessed if you don't. Right? We receive the blessings that come from living right, and we receive God's blessing when we suffer for his name. Either way, God says, I'm going to bless you. And blessed here doesn't mean happy or healthy or wealthy. If that were true, I'd be in trouble right now, right? So it's like, well, God hates you. Clearly, you, you got to. It's like, that's kind of what we think sometimes. But that's not what it means. It means highly favored by God. And I can tell you that even with what's about to happen on Wednesday, no matter what happens on Wednesday, I know that I'm highly favored by God because he gave his son for me. I mean, it's just amazing. So blessed here describes this spiritual state of well-being, a, a joyful contentment that cannot be taken away from us because it's wrapped up in Christ and he can't be taken away from us. Because of this truth, Peter can say with confidence, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. <laughs> no one can undo what God has done for you. No one can undo what God has planned for you. And no one can take away your blessing and your hope. So what is there to be afraid or troubled over? And I, I just think, imagine if we actually believed this. <laughs> I know we read it and we say, yeah, that's good. But imagine what it would be like if we believed this. I, you remember this is now this is different than Star Wars. I'm going to use a Matrix reference and that's not nerdy at all. <laughs> Totally different kind of thing. But do you remember if you ever saw that there was a point where Neo, who was the main guy in this, he, he came to the conclusion that his enemies were powerless against him. And at that point, it, it, he literally put his arm behind his back and just started blocking all their punches, like, you know, looking at his watch while he just, they, they couldn't harm him anymore. They had no, he didn't have to fear them or be troubled because they couldn't do anything to him. And he came to that conclusion. And it's like this triumphant thing. That's us in Christ. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't let them rule over your life. And that's what fear does. It allows someone or something to take control over us. If you want to know who your king is, look at who you're bowing down to. And I see Christians right now bowing down in fear to a lot of stuff. And it's wrong. Jesus is our king, and we bow to him alone. And that's why he tells us, honor Christ as Lord in your heart. He's Lord. He's King. Live like you believe that. Honor Jesus as the one who is in control, who is reigning over your life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this one time, and it's just such a good quote. Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, and those who fear God have no fear of men. And he was a guy that knew what he was talking about because he lived in Germany uh, at the time when Hitler was in power. And Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a pastor, and he outwardly opposed what was going on, verbally and, and you know actively opposed what was going on. He even helped many Jews get to safety, putting his own life in grave danger because he was not afraid of men. He cared more about what God thought and what he was more concerned about pleasing him than even his own safety, which means he stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> 
right? Think about what it says to people, the ones who want you to fear them. Think about what it says to them when it doesn't work. You know, they want you just to fear them and you look at them and go, oh, it's only you. I remember a story one time about Moody. He said he was laying in bed one time and he, he heard something. He heard a presence in the room and he woke up and it started. He looked and there was Satan sitting at the end of the bed and he went, oh, it's only you. And then he rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> that's just fantastic. Philippians chapter one says this, that, that when we're not frightened by our opponents, it is, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction and of our salvation. <laughs> that's good. It shows people... You know, there's, there's a whole nother level of conviction that, that takes place. You know, when somebody sees your, your, that kind of conviction in your life, that you're willing to suffer for what you believe, they're not afraid of what they can do to you. It's just such a powerful testament of, of Christ in us. They realize that this is, you know, oh, you're not playing here. You don't, this, I'm not even phasing you right now. So that brings us to the famous verse, that, that statement in, in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And the implication here is that, that we should expect people to come up to us when they see us living like we're describing. They should want to come up to us and say they should see this unwavering devotion, this refusal to, to bow, this refusal to be afraid, especially in the midst of suffering, and, and want to ask us, what's up with that? What gives? Why are, you, why, why are you living the way? Why do you remain full of hope in spite of what you're going through? Why do you live this way even when it causes you harm? Why don't you abandon your faith? Why aren't you crushed by the things that are crushing everybody else? Why aren't you freaking out right now when you see everything that's going on in the world? They, they're going to want to know those questions. They're, they're going to want to know why we insist also on living according to God's word when everyone else doesn't care. Why do you care? Why do you want to live that way? You know, why do you submit to authority and follow the rules? Why do you work just as hard when the boss isn't looking? These are the kinds of questions, not can he you know, create a rock that you can't lift. These are the kinds of questions people are going to want to ask. In verse or in chapter four, it actually says they're going to be stumped when we don't join into the things that they join, that they, that they do kind of like, you know, Hey, you know, why don't you jump into the pool of depravity with us? You know, the water's great. Why don't you want to jump right in here and enjoy these things they're not going to get it. And so they're going to have questions for us. Why don't you get drunk or high anymore? I remember being asked that. Well, it's like, well, I I enjoy life more without them now. And God wants me to be self-controlled and sober-minded and and to be ready for him when he comes back. So I don't need those things. Why won't you live together before getting married? This is one you're going to hear a lot today. And a lot of Christians don't, don't. I just read a thing just the other day that there's a huge number of people that think casual sex and Christianity just go fine together. And I'm stumped at that. For me, it's like I would answer, well, I have a high view of marriage because God has a high view of marriage, and I, I want to honor him in that. I don't want to do the things that displease him. Why are you staying in a marriage to such a difficult person? You know, who, why would anybody stay in an unhappy marriage? Well, because marriage is a picture of the gospel that saved me. Jesus has every reason to divorce me every day, and he sticks with me. You know, he keeps his vows, so I'm going to keep mine. Why are you going through with such an inconvenient pregnancy? Because life is precious to God. And I trust him. Why do you waste your Sundays going to church? (laughs) I think there's no place I'd rather be than with God's people, praising his name and enjoying this time. 
I was supposed to quarantine, and here I am. <laughs> Don't watch this. <laughs> I did ask, and they didn't tell me I had to. Yeah, they'll still do the surgery because it's not elective. So. You know, they, they act like we're missing out on the good life and they don't understand it, but that's not the good life. I tried all of those things and none of it satisfied my thirst. None of it filled the hole. You know, it's it was like just filling my mouth full of dirt. That's what it was like. It didn't quench my thirst. It didn't satisfy me. It made me thirstier and it led me to despair. And I left a poor taste in my mouth, quite frankly. But knowing Jesus is what changed all that. He, he's the one that ultimately quenched my thirst completely. So doing the things that please him and bring him honor is my pleasure. It's the least I can do in comparison to all that he's done for me. And when we do things his way, it results in blessing. And Paul came to this conclusion in, in Philippians 3. You know, he talked about that, that everything he has now in Christ is, is so, you know, worth so much compared to the other stuff. He calls the other stuff garbage. He actually calls it dung. You know, that's the word. Dog dookie is kind of the idea. This is compared to everything. That's what that stuff is. And he talks about, you know, knowing Jesus, the worth of knowing Jesus surpasses everything else. The idea is if I have him, I have everything. So when someone asks you the reason for the hope that you have, the answer is Jesus. It's because of what he did for us on the cross and what he has in store for us in the future. And that's why doing what this verse, uh, you know, this is possible for every Christian. What this verse says is something we can all do. Christians need to be ready, willing, and able to point people to Jesus at every given moment, in season and out of season. In the grocery store line, at work, wherever you're at, you have an opportunity, and you should be looking for those opportunities. But verse 15 tells us something important. It tells us the attitude we're supposed to have uh, when we do this. And I'm glad for that because it's easy to tell somebody something and not do it with the right attitude. And the truth is when you're telling somebody that, you know, when they see you living contrary to where they're, they're living, there's going to be some conviction that takes place. So how we go about this matters. So it says that we're to give our answer with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when we're slandered and when we're reviled for our good behavior, those, um, those people will be put to shame. And I'm glad Peter adds this because when somebody's coming at you, when they're coming in hot and they want to slander you and revile you and call you names, my gentleness and respect doesn't always, that's not, those aren't the first two things that pop into my mind. But if you respond back in a fleshly way or in a rude or harsh way, it kind of defeats the purpose of drawing them to Jesus, right? So we have to have that gentleness and respect are just rare commodities in our day, aren't they? You just don't see that ever anymore. And so People are going to be shocked when they see it. They're going to, you can disagree with me and still treat me with respect. That's weird. Again, another opportunity to point them to Christ. And it says that when they see us treat them well after slandering us and abusing us, they will be put to shame. And I know I'm a little sick in the head, but that's like, okay, that's, that's, like, that's some incentive too, right? I get a heap, I get a heap coals on their head. It's like, okay, <laughs> sign me up. Now you don't, you don't, you know, they don't know that's what you're thinking, but that's okay. I'm kidding. Mostly. There can also be a tendency for Christians, especially when, um, you know, they're living righteously and living the way God wants them to, to become prideful and arrogant about it, to start to kind of forget where that came from. <laughs> and, and that can come out in our response. There is never a place for arrogance or self-righteousness in a Christian because apart from Jesus, 
you wouldn't have either of those things. You would have no righteousness. There would be none of that. So remember where it came from and, and make sure that your response models that well. When we stand up for what we believe in and, and do it with gentleness and respect, it says that we will enjoy a good conscience. You know, I've, I've, there have been times in my life when I've enjoyed a clear conscience, and there have been times in my life when I have had a guilty conscience. And guess which one I like way better? Um, and I couldn't help about thinking about the guy who wrote this letter while I was going through this section because Peter knew about these things firsthand. He knew what it was like to have a clear conscience, and he knew what it was like to hang his head in shame. He knew what it was like to deny Jesus, to try to save his own skin, and then weep bitterly because of it. And, and he knew what it was like to boldly give a defense and suffer for it. And he's telling us which one is better. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yeah, I believe we're living in a time when Christians are going to have more opportunity than ever in our country to do what we're being told to do. Um, God really is purifying his church right now. And, and I, you know, we were, you know, what a time to be a Christian. We were made for such a time as this. So as we see everything around us getting darker and we have an opportunity to shine brighter, this is a good thing. Now, I know most people are freaking out by the way the world's going right now, but I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I, I finally have an opportunity to live this verse out in a way that looks completely different. I finally get to stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, in a good way, <laughs> not for just being weird, but, but, but for Christ. You know, there's an old quote that I normally don't like much because I, I think it often uh, is something people use to get out of sharing the gospel. They think they don't have to actually use words if, because of this verse. But in this instance, it really makes sense to, to quote it. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi, among other people, but it goes like this, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And that's kind of the heart of what this, this text is telling us. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. The gospel includes words. <laughs> you have to, you can't, you know, it's saying live, live in a way that kind of preaches the reality of the gospel. But in order for somebody to, to, to be saved, you need to preach the gospel. You need to tell them uh, about sin. You need to explain that their need for repentance, their need to turn to Christ and, and receive him as Lord, believe in, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and, and, and let him be the substitute for your, for, your, um, for your sin. That's the gospel. And so just living out the way we're supposed to doesn't do that. But but all of this just means that we have a couple of really major opportunities as Christians right now. The first one is that when we live according to God's word, we live these kind of selfless, standout lives in the way that we honor God and do good in the world. People are going to see that and they're going to be prone to ask, what's up with that? What's going on there? And secondly, we have an opportunity when we're mocked and maligned and abused for living the way we're living, when we actually suffer as Christians and, and, and when that happens, they look at us and they don't see us crumbling. They don't see us whining and complaining. Uh, when, when they see that we're not fearful, that we're not cowering to them, all those things. But they just they see Christians that remain faithful and cheerful and hopeful. They're, they're going to be baffled and, and, and want to ask again, what's up with that? In both instances, we get the opportunity and the privilege to tell them the reason for the hope that we have. We get to point people to Jesus. So hopefully this verse is a little less daunting now that you realize it's something every Christian can do. Um, do you have hope? Are you able to tell someone the reason for the hope that you have? If you answer those questions uh, 
you know, you're, you're prepared. Congratulations. You're prepared to give a reason for the, or the, you know, the hope that you have. You can answer it now. Um, Father, I just want to thank you so much that, that we, um, we get to come to um, this place and gather together as your people under your word and proclaim the goodness of your son, Jesus. Father, there's nothing greater that, that, that we can hear about than your son um, and, and what he's done for sinners, that he's, that he's come here to, to, to live the life we should have lived and then die the death we should have died. And, and Lord, if we're willing to just trust in who he is and what he's done for us, we can have life. And so I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today or anyone listening that, that's never bowed before Jesus as Lord, that, that today they would do it, that they would understand their great need and that they would trust him as their Lord and Savior. Father, I just pray that you'd give us also this opportunity to go out and live in a way that causes us to stand out in this world in a, in, in a way that we get to point people to Jesus as well. So use us, uh, use this place, and we continue to um, be in awe of who you are and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.